Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Let me officially welcome everybody here to uh, a live video streaming podcast today. This is episode number 369 in the Lean Blog interview series. I'm Mark Graben. I'm uh, the host here. And we're joined today uh, by Dr. Rachel Mandel. Rachel, how are you? I'm great today. Thanks, Mark. So it's great to talk to you again. Um, regular listeners to the podcast might know that we recorded an audio podcast that was released as episode 367 um, a week or two ago. We recorded that a month, oh, a couple of months back. It was actually recorded before uh, we stopped traveling through our work. It was um, recorded before we realized we were really in the midst of a, a pandemic. So we wanted to get back together today and, and hear Rachel's more recent thoughts um, about this era, what's happened, what's happening, what is or needs to happen in the future. So if you want to hear that first episode, you can go to leanblog.org slash 367. But Rachel, maybe you can start off by uh, briefly introducing yourself uh, for those who um, didn't hear that other episode. Um, tell us about your background. Sure, sure. So um, I'm a physician. I'm an OBGYN by training. I did my training um, through the Military uh, Health Profession Scholarship Program back when. I did my residency at uh, Triple Army Medical Center in Hawaii, then was transferred. I uh, was in Texas. I was in North Carolina. And then we landed here uh, where we currently are in Maryland. We've been in Maryland for over 25 years. My husband is also a physician. He's retired military, was career military. So that's why we ended up in this location. And um, I've been a physician practicing clinical medicine for 20 plus years. I received my MHA in 2013, uh, along with uh, a green belt and lean Six Sigma. Went into administration as the assistant vice president of medical affairs at, at one of the regional hospitals, became vice president of medical affairs. And about 18 months ago, uh, went into consulting as uh, what I like to call myself as the healthcare whisperer. And here we are. Yeah. So what, what are your thoughts in general here? I mean, it's a big broad question, but how, how, you know, what, how is lean valuable or how could it or should it be valuable here in the COVID-19 era in terms of um, you know, lean thought processes or lean methods or lean leadership principles? What, what are your thoughts on this? So lean is, has been, is currently, and will certainly be playing a huge role in how healthcare evolves moving forward. To back up just a little tiny bit, I think we have all gotten a pretty good view that the delivery of healthcare in the United States is a mostly or partly certainly broken process. And when you talk about processes, lean becomes incredibly important and may be a great tool in terms of fixing or improving those processes. So we know that there have been a lot of struggles. There have been a lot of problems and we're still working our way through those issues and those problems. And lean may be helpful for a lot of organizations as they try and restart their, their services and as they continue to deal with COVID because COVID's not going away. And COVID will be around for a length of time where hospitals are going to need to learn how to balance their response to COVID as well as, as providing their routine elective services. So they're going to have old processes that they have to fix. They've got brand new processes that they're going to have to create. 
They're going to have um, interest in taking a look at processes and how to integrate them. And lean is going to be incredibly important in all of those aspects. And, and I think that how hospitals look to their staff to utilize lean to make things better is going to determine who's successful and who's not successful. Yeah. And I think there might be, you know, you talk about problems and understanding what happened. So, you know, in lean frameworks, you know, I'm preaching to the choir with you here and, and many of our viewers, maybe it's important to define the problem and understand that current state, understand some of that recent history so we can understand causes so that we can learn from that and, and figure out what we want to do in, in the future. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure in a you know, sort of, you know, crisis mode, there's maybe a, a strengthening of the um, human nature to jump to solutions. Correct. We have no time for analysis. We have no time um, to waste. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious what you think in terms of problem solving or how you would help an organization frame this in a, a lean problem solving manner. Well, I think things are going to be a little easier to tell you the truth moving forward out of COVID or through COVID in that respect, because now we have a lot of concrete examples of lean and lean processes and tools uh, working and working well, that people will be able to wrap their heads around it when you say to them, this is what we need to do and this is why we need to do it. So in answer to your question, I believe that lean will be able to give people some kind of a framework that they can really understand because they understand that the process needs to change and they understand that they need to start new processes. So if you can give them a, a, a concrete example of how it worked previously, how it's currently working and how it's going to work for them moving forward, they may be a little more interested in taking that time and engaging to get to that outcome that's going to be beneficial to both them and the patients. And I think that this is where probably the biggest benefit for the physicians is going to be because physicians, as you and I have discussed before, and I went back, it's interesting. I went back and I looked at, and I listened to our prior conversation, mm -hmm. some of the things that we had talked about and some of the things that we had said, we had talked about people come to work wanting to do the right thing. They want to do well. Uh, physicians want to take care of their patients. We have to get them back to the why of why they do what they do. It's very obvious why they do what they do right now. Everybody understands why they do what they do and how good they are at it and how committed they are to doing it. Okay, so that's great. So they're still wanting to do those things. Now we can show them these processes and what's happened during COVID and how they can continue and how it's helped them and how we can continue to use these methodologies and tools to continue to help them. They were struggling, they had all kinds of issues, they were trying to they problem solve. And once you put a little bit of structure around that and show them that it actually worked, I think it's gonna be a little easier if they're receptive in general, and that's a big if. Sure. sure. It's gonna be easier to align them with Lean and, and doing these initiatives because they've seen it work, they've seen how it's helped them. There've been some amazing examples of problem solving that some organizations have gone through. Um, one in particular that really, from a lean standpoint that I thought was really great was that Mount Sinai morning, Mount Sinai Morningside, that's not easy to say, yeah. um, had, had to decide what to do about PPE, protective equipment for their staff that were part of what's called the rapid response team and RRT. 
So a rapid response team for people that don't know is basically you've got a patient who's not doing well, they're not doing well, all of a sudden they call a rapid response and a group of individuals, multidisciplinary, attack that patient to assess them, to treat them, and to stabilize them. And those people come from all over the hospital. There's a cart, a rapid response cart, that has all the equipment and medications that they would need in that situation to help stabilize that patient. So classically what happens is, is that the old state is that they call a rapid response overhead or by pager. The, the people come, now there are people assigned to the rapid response team, but usually everybody who's free comes, they come to lend a hand. So you can end up with a very large number of people at the bedside. Well, they were finding that they had to assume that every patient had COVID. They were finding that they had a lot of people attending these rapid response calls as they had before and appropriately so. And they were finding that they didn't have PPE for all the people that were there. So they went through several processes of evaluating this problem including talking to the stakeholders. They went to the front lines, they talked to the docs and the respiratory techs and the nurses and everybody who was involved. They talked to the people who put together the equipment. They talked to everybody. And they came up with a process where they decided nine people are going to the rapid response. Not everybody, but the assigned nine people. They had nine full sets of PPE that they put into a go bag, which was a red colored bag. And they called it a go bag and they put it on the rapid response cart. They had talked about, should it be in a central location? Should it be outside the room? Should it be in all of the units? They went through all of those processes and determined the best way was that the PPE should be with the cart. Yeah. The other thing that they did was, every case cart like that typically has some kind of a lock on it, plastic lock, that's color-coded, that tells you that that cart is, is full, it's complete, and it's ready for use. They did the same thing with the go bag. They put the same color plastic lock on the go bag. So you could quickly look at it and know both of those sets, the cart and the PPE were ready to go. And then after they used it, they switched the color of the lock from white to purple. They did the same thing for the go bag. So everybody understood that both of those needed to be replenished and shouldn't be used. Hmm. So you had talking to the people, respecting the, the workers at the front line and getting their input. You had visual management. You had standardization of work. You had, you had also communication because they had to communicate the new process. They went through a PDCA cycle because one thing worked, one thing didn't work. It was just a great example. And, and they do have a lean team, a great example of using these ideas to solve a problem that they never had to solve before mm-hmm. really seemed to work for them. Yeah, oh, that's great. That's a great example. And it, it, it seems like there's this balance right now of problem solving in response to things where the process or the system let people down and trying to figure out how to fix that. But then we're also simultaneously creating a lot of new processes for this new future, this new reality of, let's say, you know, we've got patients scheduled to come into um, clinics for um, scheduled appointments. Mm -hmm. How do you do that in a way that minimizes contact that, right. that has distancing. Um, it, it's not, you know, some of that is very much a reinvention. Um, it's more than maybe even just continuous improvement. And so, you know, to you, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you talked earlier about this balance between continued COVID care and um, ramping up elective procedures, but, you know, what, what are your thoughts around finding the balance between sort of backward looking problem solving to fix 
problems that occurred versus having to look future, uh, look into the future proactively as I drop and throw my pen around. Let me sure. that by setting it down. Um, how do you find that balance looking backward, looking forward? Sure. I think it's interesting that a lot of organizations are actually um, taking advantage of this opportunity to fix some of those problems from the past. Uh, I, I happened to look at some material that was put forward by uh, Rush University Medical Center that was describing a very high level by how they're going to move towards re-implementing their elective surgeries. And one of the things that really caught my attention was a sentence that said it was an opportunity for them to reestablish relationships between administration and the perioperative team. So in a very broad sense, and not not all administrations and, and clinical teams have their issues. In fact, a lot of teams get along really well, and I don't even know specifically what that relationship you know, was for them. But um, even that sentence tells me that they recognized that there was an opportunity for them to improve uh, relationships, functionality, and alignment. And and that's a great thing. That's a really great thing to be able to look at that and say, okay, we know we're not perfect. So moving forward, given that everything's been kind of torn apart right now and we're starting almost from, from scratch, let's make it better than it was before. And uh, this, is that, this is that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And this is where it's so important for organizations to, to re-engage the physicians, the surgeons, their staff, to be able to say to them honestly and transparently, okay, we have to start over. This is what we have to do. How should we do this? Understanding that not only are they going to have to manage COVID and their routine business, but that their processes are going to be completely different. It's just not going to be straightforward. And and the devil is in the detail here. It's going to mean every single person understands what their role is. For example, what have the anesthesiologists have been doing in a lot of the hospitals during COVID? Well, some of them have been doing the surgeries that are not elective, but many of them have been helping out with the intensive care patients and helping with the ventilated patients. They've been additional resources that, that hospitals have been able to use during this time when elective procedures have been shut down. When they go back to doing elective procedures, how is that coverage going to be done? How is the staffing going to be done? How are they going to be able to pivot and do a basically what, what amounts to a quick changeover? How are they going to be able to do that if all of a sudden there's a COVID surge? There needs to be a plan. The, the nurses in the operating room, and of course, the amount of PPE that's going to go up for elective surgeries as well as COVID response, but they have to take that into account. But the nurses in the in the pre-op areas, the nurses in the recovery rooms, they will probably all be wearing PPE. And the patients more than likely will have to be rapid tested when they come in. There'll have to be a whole other set of procedures around the case choosing the cases that will be done electively, how the patients will be processed. Do the patients, for example, need to get their history and physicals updated? If they have to get their history and physicals updated, do they have to go back to their primary care doctors or their cardiologists or whoever gave them their clearances? Because everybody's information is out of date. That's that's a Medicare requirement that mm-hmm. they need to have something that's up to date within 30 days of their surgery. Everybody's out of date now. Um, so how does, how does that happen? How do the offices handle that? Are the offices open? Are they accepting patients post-surgery? How are we aligning with the, our partners, for example, rehabilitation or home health? What, what are their processes? So this, this multi-layered approach, you can't just say, 
well, we know we've got a, a, a system that may not be working for surgery or a system that may not be happening in the hospital. We're going to fix our part of it. They've got to fix more than their part of it because COVID has impacted the entire life cycle, basically, of a, of a surgical patient. Yeah. So um, th- there's a lot of thinking that has to go into this, and, and the physicians have to get brought into this process. They've got to be in this process from the beginning. Uh, so that everybody understands what that process is and, and everybody knows why it happened that way. Uh, that's, uh, I think that's one of the key things that w- we're struggling with right now is I don't think that there's a lot, enough information coming out about why certain things are happening. Mm-hmm. Why are some states opening some uh, businesses and not others? If you can explain those whys, uh, it makes a whole lot more sense to the people. They understand it and that they're more likely to follow it. It's the same thing when you're reinventing these processes. Why are you doing that? Why do patients have to get re- get tested? Why do nurses have to wear the PPE? Why are the, are the staff being tested or not being tested? Why or why not? Mm-hmm. So these are things that everybody's going to have to look at. And Lean can help with some of that in terms of sorting out those processes and helping you problem solve. And when you go through that problem solving, implementing you know, processes and structures that make sense to people that they'll understand that they can follow yeah. easily. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an important part of leadership's responsibilities. You know, my, mm-hmm. my training and mentoring through my career about lean um, is really emphasized as, as you said, leaders explaining why um, engaging people and developing the details, but starting with, with why. Um, and then, you know, as we're designing new processes, and training people, you know, the uh, going back, this is an old methodology that's still really relevant, training within industry, right? you know, uh, uh, emphasizes explaining why at a more detail level. Why, I think, for example, of, you know, something you know, more related to um, everyday, new COVID everyday life. If you're, if you're um, putting on a mask, you know, it ties around the back of your head. Surgeons, doctors who are doing this more often <laughs> may take this all for granted. For those of us who are not clinicians, um, you know, we're having to learn. You know, as we uh, have the mask on, and then we come home and we go to take the mask off. That mm-hmm. it's important to take it off by the straps and maybe not touch the, the 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 front of the mask, and then go wash your hands. So we could have standard work that says in a very directive way: take off mask, touch only by the straps. And people mm-hmm. might say, well, that seems dumb. It would be easier if I just grab it by the front. But you know, I think lean thinking and training within industry would take that extra step of explaining why we should only touch it by the straps. Correct. So as you were saying, um, that helps people internalize the reasons and they're more likely to follow the process if they're able to follow the process, which I think is another key point there. It would be, uh, I think, really problematic if, if leaders mandated, um, you know, you must put on a fresh mask for every patient encounter, maybe not realizing there could be shortages, right? So then that would be a case when the standard work is not um, achievable. And when there are disconnects or when people aren't being engaged or listened to, or when leaders aren't aware of these real problems, that's where I think tensions and relationships get frayed in, in a workplace. I think there's also that tension in relationship between the perception that you can have quality care without spending money. Mm-hmm. So you've got that dichotomy between margin and, and provision of quality of care, which is another place 
that that we know from experience that lean will help, that one is not mutually exclusive of the other. So some of the, the traditional um, challenges between a medical staff and an administration and where there's sometimes a lack of trust is when physicians are under the impression that they can't do something or they can't practice in a certain way because it costs too much money. You know, lean, lean has that little kind of tenant of, you know, creativity before capital, right? Um, yes, that's, that's true. And, and that's happened, I think, during COVID that people have been really creative, um, understanding that they've been given some resources mm-hmm. within reason uh, to, to find those workarounds, to, to fix those problems, to set up different processes. Um, but we, we've got to break that concept that, that you have to all the time spend money or in order to get those, those quality outcomes. That if you look at those processes and, and you streamline them and you get rid of the things that you don't have to do and you, you work on the things, you let people do the things that are easy to do and you let them try the things that are easy to try and you do some rapid improvement cycles and you really get them engaged and invested in fixing their work environment, improving their work environment the cost is going to come down as, as well. And, um, you know, that's, again, that's where some of the, the prior uh, uh, disconnects have been between physicians and, and administrators. And, and unfortunately, there have been some instances during COVID where those things have been amplified in the sense that physicians and healthcare workers in general, and, and this is a huge generalization on my part and certainly isn't, isn't the truth, but we all see the news, we all hear stories, we all talk to our peers, how they feel that they don't have the resources that they need to do the work safely and to do the work well. And um, they blame, whether appropriate or not appropriate, the people who are in charge of those processes, which tend to be administrators and even politicians, if you wanna push it back that far. So it's a breach of trust. And this is one of the things that I'm very concerned about moving forward, that it's very hard to build that back again. And, and obviously this is a, this is a team sport healthcare and everybody really needs to be aligned and engaged and, and moving in the same direction. And, and right now the medical staff, the clinicians um, who were in danger of burning out prior to COVID, uh, obviously they've been stressed more and I'm, and I'm concerned about what happens to them and to their psyche and to, to how they deal with their work um, once the adrenaline wears off, once the acuity of this particular episode kind of settles down and then some of the, um, some of the interest in them and some of the focus on them shifts to something else or that the talk goes somewhere else and they're still working hard and they're still taking care of COVID patients and they're still in danger and they don't feel like that they're really getting the support that they need clinicians who've gotten sick were told that they had to come to work, clinicians who were concerned about the work environment and their PPE, and whether this is true or not true, the perception is that they were they were furloughed or they were suspended or they were fired because they were acting out with, in what way they thought was appropriate for keeping people safe. So I'm concerned about the psyche of medical staff and the medical individuals in general yeah. um, and how that will impact their interest in continuing to do what they're doing and how much they want to engage in continuous improvement activities. Um, a study by Merritt Hawkins recently, that was a survey and they took a look at how physicians were thinking about specifically physicians were thinking about that work. You know, 21% of them said that they were either furloughed or had a decrease in their, um, their pay, which is not surprising, but furloughed. Could you ever imagine a circumstance where a physician would be furloughed? That's just, that's unbelievable. 
Fourteen uh, percent talked about how they were going to change their practice environment, maybe going from private practice to employed, or maybe going from uh, a small group to a to a larger group. Uh, it's unclear. But eighteen percent, which was the, the statistic that really stunned me, eighteen percent were talking about that they were planning on leaving clinical medicine altogether. Uh, whether that was retirement or doing something different in an organization that wasn't directly patient related, that's almost one in five. And um, that's, that's pretty concerning that, yes. that they've been damaged in some way or really had a perspective or an experience that made them think that they were going to leave their practice of medicine, which as you and I've talked about before for healthcare, it's a calling, it's not a job. Mm-hmm. And um, that's so that worries me in terms of whether those people are going to be interested in in engaging in anything, uh, certainly, you know, leaner or any other process improvement. Um, I believe leaders are going to rise. I have no doubt that there's going to be physician leaders who are going to look at the situation and say, we can do better. And and they're going to throw themselves into it and they're going to, you know, want to be going to educate themselves. They're going to get involved. And they're going to be leaders who are going to say, one, we don't want to let this happen again. And two, we can do so much better. And this is an opportunity for, for healthcare improvement. So what I hear you saying is, you know, some physicians um, are, are going to be increasingly burned out to the point where they may retire early or leave the profession. Mm-hmm. On, the, on the other side, there are some who may step into leadership roles that they haven't taken on before. They may feel... Uh, this this set, this different calling now Correct. try to help fix the broader system. That that's what you're saying. Correct. Yeah, and whether it's locally, you know, at their own hospital, if they want to do something larger than that, or if they want to shift. I mean, physicians can can be in all kinds of roles and really have an impact, and not necessarily be doing clinical medicine, myself included. But yeah. I mean, you know, take take a look at uh, all all the physicians that are they're speaking on television and and news and giving information, updating people where that may be their only source about what's going on and what they can do and how they can keep themselves safe or an administration where they can improve processes for their patients in their community and their region or public health. There's so many opportunities, but it's just unclear right now because we've never been through this before, exactly how they're going to respond. There was, there was a potential shortage to start with before this. I'm concerned it's just going to be magnified by this. Mm-hmm. outbreak. Um, but, but again, uh, I, I'm surprised and, and encouraged always by the positivity and by, by how well people do uh, under stress. And we may see some people really kind of rise to the top uh, in, in different venues and in, in different uh, roles. Yeah. And, you know, you, you mentioned, um, just going back a little bit to um, furloughs, um, you know, it seems here in the past two months as healthcare was being asked to prepare for this expected wave of COVID-19 patients. And this wave mm-hmm. has been bigger, obviously, in some cities and some states than others. But I think it seems like across the country, the, this pre- uh, preparation has been taking place. And I, and I think I saw something on the range of 40 or 42 states had mandated that elective procedures be stopped in the in the, in the, uh, for the purpose of saving PPE, maybe mm-hmm. freeing up people and space for the more um, acute, urgent COVID nineteen patients. And 
you know, the, those those elective procedures are um, arguably, or and maybe this is just fact, the cash cow for yes. healthcare organizations. So it seems like there's been this double whammy of um, maybe some increased cost in preparing and in, in dealing with COVID-19 and this, this big hit that's been taken in terms of uh, revenue now. Well, some of these um, delayed cases, you know, some of that revenue might be made up for some of those opportunities might just be lost. But, you know, I think the, the, the lean conversation here, um, you know, is comparing um, hospitals who say things like, well, we are forced to lay people off. I'm like, well, laying people off is a choice. It may be the, 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 the best, you know, some may view that as um, necessary or they don't have a better approach right now. Um, you know, I think, look at what happened, you know, Toyota has um, shut down factories as other automakers and Toyota's famous for not laying people off in the short term, or mm -hmm. you, know, you can go back to the financial crisis when they weren't building cars and trucks for months. Um, Full-time employees were paid to do quality improvement projects. They were paid to train and increase their skills. In some cases, they were paid to go out into the community and build mm -hmm. Habitat for Humanity homes. And other automakers generally don't do that. And Toyota, though, has positioned themselves to have the cash to be able to afford that. Hospitals, you know, as much as I could criticize right. and say, like, well, maybe you should look at alternatives to laying people off. Hospitals, even in good times before COVID-19, were often operating on very thin margins. Now, a lot of very. that is to their own, maybe, you know, waste and inefficiency that lean could otherwise address. Um, but it's one of those, maybe it's a hope or a wish for the future that hospitals could position themselves financially to not feel forced into laying people off. I, I'm, I'm curious what, what some of your other thoughts are around that. Well, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, let's take something really specific like revenue cycle. I, I, I mean, I can't believe that there's any hospital in this country that has completely maximized their revenue cycle and as efficient as they possibly could be, that there's no place else that they can possibly tweak it so they get maximum benefit out of their revenue cycle and their collections. So that would be someplace where lean would be useful is in improving uh, an organization's revenue cycle and increasing their how much revenue they get and, and, and what's left behind. I mean, organizations are leaving money on the table when we talk about, about supplies that are wasted or supplies that are that expire or, or people's time is wasted, you know, those intangibles that, that we can't put money on. I mean, you wanna, you wanna see an, it's nice to see an ROI on a lean project, but that's not the point. The point is, is to make a process better and the point is, is to be able to get everybody to do what they need to do. I mean, one of the simplest things, of course, is, is um, you know, you, you do a 5S in a, in a, in a nursing station's uh, closet where they keep their supplies. And you do the same thing for every single closet and every single supply room all over the hospital, especially during these times in COVID where people are moving around so much. And they're really, they're cross-training and they're learning new new duties. I mean, how many nurses... We're, we're floor nurses on med surge and all of a sudden they're in intensive care and they've gone through a several day or one week training, intensive training to be able to do basic care in intensive care because it's necessary. Well, all of a sudden they're on a different unit or you've got doctors who are doing nurse, nursing duties, mm -hmm. um, but helping out nurses doing some of that care because they're short on nurses and it, the doctor may be in a specialty where 
they're not immediately needed for that specialty, but they've got medical skills. They can do some of those things to, to alleviate the burden of some of those nurses in the ICU. Mm -hmm. And they're being taught how to do those nursing activities. And so if you standardize some of their processes, you standardize the equipment, you stand, you, you get rid of the things that are unnecessary. You, you use lean so that they have more time to spend with the patients, which again, during this time is so critically more important now than it ever has been. And it's always been critical to spend time with patients. Right. That's an intangible ROI, but really ultimately there will be an ROI. If you give that nurse more time to spend with a patient, instead of looking for supplies or walking from, walking from one end of the unit to the other end of the unit, yeah. and that nurse has more time to make sure that that patient understands what's going on and less of a chance to fall. Mm -hmm. If the patient falls and breaks something, not only is that terrible for the patient, but it's there's more expense obviously in hospital stay, supplies, maybe surgery. Um, the value-based care reimbursements, that's a penalty for, for a hospital acquired condition or complication. That's rehabilitation afterwards, which might not have otherwise been necessary. So the expense for that episode of care balloons unnecessarily, where mm -hmm. if you'd given that nurse through some of these processes, a little more time to do direct patient care, right. it could have right. been prevented. Right. So, so obviously these things really need to be looked at in the bigger case. And, and again, they're only magnified and amplified by what's going on in COVID because COVID has its own set of issues and puts a burden, a whole nother burden on the hospital um, separate from the hospital's usual business. Yeah, And it yeah. just makes it that much more complex, which means that it just requires something like lean even more to try and sort it out and, and make it work. Yeah. Um, so I do want to invite, you know, for the, uh, the live viewers right now, if you've got um, questions for Rachel, you can submit questions via the live chat box that you see beneath the video here in YouTube. Um, but one other question I, I, I had for you, Rachel, you, you talked about standardization. And one, one comment you made um, you know, before we, we did the session here, wanted to come back to um, interesting thought. Why, why is checklist no longer a dirty word? I guess it begs the question, why to some would standardization or checklist be a dirty word? And, and how do you think some of that is changing? So I, I smile when you say that because checklist is a dirty word. Why? <laughs> <But maybe not. laughs> Why? Well, from a physician standpoint, um, that goes along with uh, not wanting to do um, what they consider cookbook medicine. I don't mm -hmm. like using that phrase, but really it's the best way to, to get the idea across. Don't, don't tell me how to practice medicine. I know how to practice medicine. Um, I, I think we've made a lot of progress though with that understanding that the evidence-based care is not cookbook medicine, that it's it's science, and that there are certain things that should be happening with a patient that if you do these things, it will improve the chances that they will do well, with the caveat that a physician certainly can use judgment mm -hmm. and, and tweak that or change something or do something different. Now, going back to the checklist, unfortunately, this whole checklist concept was, was melded together with, with this cookbook medicine concept being told you have to do this, check, 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 check. Yes, I did all those things. It's an uncomfortable concept for people who are typically personality-wise, part of the reason why they went into medicine are very independent or kind of you know, free thinkers or problem solvers. 
And to have somebody else externally come in and tell them you need to be doing A, B, C, and D is just inherently uncomfortable and, uh, and just kind of makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Well, now that we've been partly through this COVID issue and, and doctors have been exposed to a checklist or an explanation sheet or, or uh, a sign that tells them how to don and doff PPE so that they can be safe, they might be a little more amenable to accepting that kind of information in that kind of a way. Um, they may be a little more amenable to going into an operating room and having a, a, a safe surgery checklist to make sure that all the things that should be done have been done so that not only is the patient safe, but, the, but they're comfortable that everybody's done the right thing. Um, yeah, I mean, there are some things, in fact, I heard a doc the other day talking about proning patients, and, and I don't know how much the, the aunts know about that. So proning uh, is when you, turn, when you turn a patient over on their stomach, on their face to help them breathe better. There has been a lot of data in the past for patients who have acute respiratory distress, um, that that has seemed to help them and take some of the pressure off. They're able to breathe a little easier, but it wasn't clear if this was something that a COVID patient would benefit from. So docs started trying it. And have found that in some patients it really makes a difference. And now they're they're people are making equipment to support those COVID patients who are prone a little better, so that their tubes, their ventilators, their IVs, and everything are supported, so that they're 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 safe and that they're comfortable. But the point is, is that I heard a doc talking about now proning is on the checklist. I mean, he actually said that. So when I look at a COVID patient, basically the concept is these are the things that I need to think about when I'm looking at a COVID patient based on things that other doctors have done, all the information we're getting from other places, you want to, you know, take a look at these organ systems. You want to make sure you've looked at these medications. You want to do these things. And now proning is on the checklist. And, mm -hmm. and I think he meant that in a, in a, a metaphorical kind of way. And it was, you know, just, you know, it's on the checklist, but docs now are thinking that checklists concretely mm -hmm. can be a benefit to them and can be a benefit mm -hmm. to, to the staff around them. And it, it may not be as dirty a word as it was before, but it's that it's it's a resource for them. And it's it's not a um it's not an edict. It's a way to help, it's not a way to to torture. Yeah. And, and I, I understand the pushback or the consternation about top-down edicts. And I think that's where people sometimes or often misunderstand the lean concept of standardized work is not meant to be top-down edicts. Right. Even Toyota people going back historically would say standardized work should be written by the people doing the work, which is a matter of respect and engagement and the expertise that lies within those who do the work. Now, leaders may have input, you know, so it's a collaborative process. I think there's also a misunderstanding that standardized work or checklists are somehow supposed to um, eliminate judgment or have people check their brain at the door. We don't want people checking their no. brain at the door. No. Um, that checklists in different settings, like I've, I've, I had the, the opportunity to see um, uh, Sully, Captain Sullenberger, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, give a talk at a Lean Six Sigma conference. And, and I'd heard him make comments otherwise where, you know, he said in that emergency moment, there was no precise checklist that said, here's exactly what you do when you've just taken off from a New York City airport and both engines have been knocked out by geese and you're maybe having to consider landing on the Hudson River. There was no checklist that told them exactly what to do. The right. judgment of Sully and his co-pilot 
were to figure out for one, which checklists to use, checklists mm -hmm. about trying to restart the engine. Um, but they, 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 there was this combination of judgment, if not creativity that was born from experience and checklists that were helpful from a very micro level. So that, mm -hmm. for example, they didn't lose track of their altitude because they were both doing other things, you know, as, as, right. as aviation has learned from, um, uh, you know, tragic incidents in the past. So, um, you know, I think the pushback is, you know, maybe about checklists done badly. Right. So there's, there's complaints about standardized work done badly. And, and, and the other comment I was going to make, like, I, I love to cook just um, recreationally. And I, I've, ta I've taken cooking classes. And I, and I think the knock against cookbook medicine is, is even a, a misunderstanding mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. cooking. Because let's say, you know, a restaurant has recipes. That doesn't mean I could come in off the street right. and just follow the recipe and become a Michelin-starred chef. Like in the cooking classes, you know, it's always emphasized, taste what you cook. Why mm -hmm. is that? Because there may be variation in the ingredients. And you may need to then use judgment and adjust your seasoning or adjust your cooking time based on um, the thickness of a meat. Even, even cookbook cooking is not meant to be. It's not meant to be that way. A judgment-free yes. zone. Right. I agree. I'm glad you brought up leadership. Uh, if there are a couple of things that, that I really feel strongly about in terms of leadership, it's, it's that one, the leaders really do have to go where the work is, mm -hmm. um, especially in these times, leaders who sequester themselves away in the C-suite uh, and are not really understanding what their teams are telling them about what's happening on the front lines in the emergency room and the ICU, et cetera. It's going to be very difficult for those leaders to uh, restart their organizations with, with full engagement. Uh, the, the, the staff knows where they are. The staff knows what they're doing, and that's, that's not going to work. Uh, the leaders really have to engage everybody, again, as, as not as customers, but as partners to restart their organizations and to move forward and to, and to have those plans, those implementation plans for how they're going to survive and, and come out on the other side as a whole organization. And, and they've got to communicate. And that communication, we've, we've touched on it before, how important that transparency is about what's happening, why is it happening, and what is the plan. And it's okay to say, I don't know at this time, or that's not clear, and I'll get back to you. Yeah. That's okay. Yeah. That's really yeah. okay. Yeah, and a lot of leaders and a lot of organizations don't like to admit, I don't know. And I, and I think that's a, a you know, there's, there's a humility involved. And, and humility gets described as a key lean leadership trait. And I think part of that humility is I've heard uh, Dr. John Toussaint talk about is, you know, the, mm -hmm. in his own personal transition from what he calls white coat leadership, the all knowing in command leader versus somebody who is willing to admit, I don't know, or I'm not the best person to decide as right. an executive bouncing it back to the front line staff and clinicians to have them figure that out. And, you know, so it's, it's a combination of maybe um, a lack of humility, but it's also, I think, organizational habit, like what has been encouraged, what has been required, mm -hmm. what has been modeled by leaders over right. time of, you know, who's been punished or gotten a bad reputation for admitting, I don't know. I mean, you know, right. people get conditioned very quickly to what their 
organization is driving them to uh, how, how the organization is driving them to behave. Right. And granted in medicine, that whole, I don't know thing. Um, it's, it's a tough sentence to say for doctors to say, I don't know. I, I, um, I had a primary care physician um, who during one visit, I was in the exam room and he said, excuse me, I, I, I need to step out for a minute. Mm-hmm. And he came back in and he literally apologized that he had to go and look something up. Right. And I told him, like, I'm glad that you did. I would, <laughs> <That's rather, right. laughs> I would rather you go look it up and right. be sure rather than being unsure or bluffing your way through something. Um, but, you know, John, I've heard John Toussaint talk about how early in his career, he was criticized by his attendings for carrying, was it, was it the Washington Manual? Am I remembering? Yes. Yeah, the pediatric he, would, he would carry that in his white coat pocket and he was told like, no, shame on you. You need to, you need to have this all in mm-hmm. your head, which mm-hmm. seems like an unreasonable expectation, at least to me as a right. non-clinician. Sure. I, I just think that for, from, I know it's an uncomfortable place for some administrators to be who don't have clinical backgrounds, but to, to see an administrator, I mean, just imagine to go into full PPE and, and go into the emergency room and see what their staff's doing and to, to talk to their staff and to hear their feedback and what they think is going well and what's not going well, to understand how many times a day the staff needs to talk to families remotely and tell them that perhaps their loved one is, is being intubated or had to go to the ICU or even passed away, how much that, that strains a system. And honestly, sometimes until you're actually there, you don't really know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's so important for leaders to understand that. And some do it well, and unfortunately, some don't do it as well. Yeah. But as a lean principle of of going to the people and respecting them, that's incredibly important. Yeah. So we have uh, a kind of a, a, com- well, a, a comment from one of the live viewers. So I'll, I'll relay this to you and get your thoughts, Rachel. Uh, Aparvati mm-hmm. says, I'm in an organization I've described as very unlean with deeply entrenched and rigid silos. The doctors seem to get checklists. It's the non-clinical administrators wishing mm-hmm. to maintain control over fiefdoms who seem more resistant. Sure. What are your thoughts on that? Pretty common, unfortunately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what what happens? What can happen there that might be useful is is talking to people at you have to find those people at levels of leadership who might get it, and it might only be one person, or it might be somebody on the board of directors who gets it, who might be able to leverage their position with some other leadership. You might have to have small successes that you can bring forward and show people that they're working. You take some of those processes that are working, some of those those checklists, those evidence-based protocols, and you apply them to another part of the organization or perhaps to another nursing unit. And then you're able to have some data that you can use to bring forward and say, look, this is why this is working. This is what it can solve. I mean, you and I have talked before about advanced care planning, advanced directives, and trying to get the organization to embrace having that as a, as a, as a, a, a real goal for the organization to get as many people as possible to think about their advanced care planning and to execute advanced care plans and to have them put into the computer system for the, for the providers to be able to have access to. And we ended up doing a small pilot. There was a lot of resistance. There was no money in the organization to hire somebody or to fund somebody to do counseling and to, and to run with that initiative. We we did kind of a workaround to run a small pilot. 
that was the data was collected manually and processed manually, but showed very clearly the financial and quality of care benefit and the patient experience benefit and the population health benefit of, of pursuing this type of an initiative. And so we were able to, to get that resource to move the organization forward. I think you've got to start someplace and be able to show something concrete and then bring it to people higher up in the organization who have a little bit of power, a little bit of authority who can make changes. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, going back to the broader issue of lean acceptance or the acceptance of checklists or other, other things, um, it's easier to try to demonstrate benefit and value through a small pilot than it is to try to talk people into it. Sure. Um, I, I was wondering if you, if you, you know, could share an example um, of, of, you know, kind of uh, taking baby steps or doing some sort of small scale test of practices like this, instead of trying to hope for like an organizational wide all at once mandate or edict. Right. And sometimes it's even as simple as, as a little bit of patient flow in an area, for example, how do you move somebody from one area to another area? How does it make sense to for the nurse to contact the uh, transporter and have the patient ready and to coordinate all of those. You just take little pieces of a process and, and tweak it to work so that it makes sense to everybody. And then you can roll it out to, to the rest of the organization. Uh, it, again, it's just like you said, it's just dividing things up and, and making sure that people understand. Um, you you kind of reminded me just now when you asked me that question about um, trying to get people aligned this, this gentleman, this person has silos in their organization. It's really important, especially in healthcare, to get back to that why. Why are we doing this? Why did we come into healthcare? Who are we here for? And then why do we want to change our process? What is the benefit to the patient and the provision of healthcare for doing this? I think that when you have that conversation with somebody about something you would like to discuss that, that involves a change, if you can frame it in that context of this is what's best for the patient and not necessarily as straightforward as that, but have that conversation with those people or that person about why this is in the best interest of the patient and quality care and better outcomes, because that's ultimately why everybody is there. And if you can kind of break down that wall and, and everybody's aligned in the same place and understands the collaboration and the purpose you may be able to get a little bit of traction. Yeah. And that little bit of traction could sometimes lead to much bigger things. Correct. That's, that's the hope. Yeah. Um, so maybe um, one, one other question for you. Um, do you have thoughts as a clinician, um, you know, for, for people who are watching who are just trying to navigate the new normal when it comes to safety um, in our daily lives? Do you have any thoughts or practices, anything that you've developed or um, that, you know, in your own daily life that you would want to share with others? I know this is a tough thing to think about, but people really need to use a lot of common sense. Not only do they need to use a lot of common sense, but they really need to think about other people and how their actions will impact others. And the reverse is true. So I, I think probably wearing a mask in public is, is a great example of that. You're not wearing a mask in public for your benefit, although there could be a benefit. You're really wearing the mask for somebody else's benefit because you potentially could be an asymptomatic carrier. 
and that's a, that's a tough concept for people. Um, Americans don't manage that well. We're very independent and we're very free thinking, and we don't do well with with mass societal concepts. But we can. We've done it before. We can do it again. So use common sense. Remember that we all have to look out for each other. We have to try and do the right thing. You can you can look at a situation and determine what makes sense and how you can keep people around you safe. You want to keep people around you safe, including your family, including your friends, including yourself. That's the bottom line. That's what we all need to do. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you for those reminders. You know, I remember, you know, um, trips to um, Japan um, in Asia, you generally see even before the pandemic, more people wearing masks in mm-hmm. uh public transportation and, and public settings. And uh, it was really eye-opening to me because I had always assumed that people were wearing the masks to keep themselves from getting ill. And it was explained to me, no, no the generally wearing the mask is considered a courtesy that you're, Correct. if you're feeling a little bit unwell, you're, you're trying to not spread that to others, which, um, it, you know, it, it's a reminder for, um, you know, the need to, to, to look after others and, you know, I, I've been trying to reflect and practice um, being more patient. I mean, I think this is a time where mm-hmm. everybody is anxious and on edge. Things like patience and graciousness and, and being mm-hmm. thankful um, go a long way. Um, like if, you know, let's say, you know, we, we're ordering takeout and, you know, trying to be patient, uh, even as a process thinker, that a lot of these restaurants are having to develop brand new processes on the fly. Right. They've never done takeout before. And now they're trying to figure out how to operate, how to operate a kitchen in a physically distanced way. They're trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to take orders. And if something is wrong or if something is delayed, to not get upset about that. Easier said than done. But I've, I've been really focusing on trying to be more patient and uh, you know, forgiving of situations where before the pandemic, you look, you know, I, I get frustrated, especially when there's bad process and it's easy to to get mm-hmm. huffy or um you know, so, so that, that's one thing I'm trying to do. That's not so much about safety, but just trying to be better during these times. Sure, sure. So, I mean, that's that's a great way to put it. I mean, everybody can do something better than they're doing currently. So common sense. I always say that you use your intuition and your gut when you're looking at something. If you think that you should be cleaning something, go ahead and do it. <laughs> if you think that you should be avoiding something, go ahead and avoid it. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't have to put yourself in situations that make you uncomfortable mm-hmm. and uh, trying to have the best information, the best correct information that you can from a source that you respect and yeah. um, just do the best you can. It's a tough situation for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, I think there are a lot of practices where, let's say, you know, hand washing or leaving your shoes outside in the hallway. It might not help, but what could it hurt? I mean, hand washing mm-hmm. is a a good practice, but the question is, should I hand wash? Should I wash my hands again? I've been in the apartment. Um, I haven't left anywhere. I, I, I saw a great video, a woman who had, um, you know, kind of a, a congenital uh, immune deficiency and mm-hmm. um, had gone through a bone marrow transplant. And especially during that time, like she had to really live the way a lot of us are now living. And, and she was saying her one rule of thumb was, if I couldn't remember the last time I washed my hands, that means I should wash my hands. <laughs> and she was passing right. along the, those, those ideas as tips for the COVID era. So, um, you know, is it necessary to uh, leave the shoes in the hallway? No, but what could it hurt? 
you know, I think we have to be careful. There are some things that people might try that could be harmful. Like I've heard, mm -hmm. you know, um, admonitions and we could explain why of like, why you should not wash produce in a diluted bleach solution. Like that could mm -hmm. be harmful. Mm -hmm. So maybe we can separate some of these practices into buckets of, well, if, if there's no conceivable harm, then go ahead and do it right. versus things that we should be not doing because there could be harm. The good thing is that in this day and age, there's a lot of really respectable places to, to research that kind of thing. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of data out there and people just have to be, be willing to look for it. There's a lot of good, reliable sources yeah. and they should take advantage. Yeah. And, and do you have any recommendations on um, how to, you know, how to filter out what's reliable, like a CDC website or what would you recommend? C CDC website is great. Um, you, you can also go to some of the, the kind of typical places where people go for, for medical research, you know, WebMD, et cetera. You can also go to organizations, Mayo, mm -hmm. Cleveland Clinic, Hopkins. Mm -hmm. um, they've typically got great information that that's really, really respectable. Your local um, health department, that would be a, a great place to, to get resources as well. Uh, so, you know, people just have to try and figure out what works for them and where mm -hmm. they feel comfortable getting that information from. Um, unfortunately, sometimes people get very cavalier about certain things and they'll say, it's not life-threatening. Well, yeah, it actually can be mm -hmm. in this particular case. So we really have to not get too anxious. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it could be pretty scary when you start thinking about all the potential things that could happen. You just got to take a nice deep breath, recenter yourself and think about, okay, um, I'm good now. I'm doing the best that I can. People are working at this and then finding resources that work for you yeah. and, uh, and, and find activities that, that, that balance you find things like the walking we had discussed earlier. You go for a walk, you, you do something that gets your mind off of what's going on. You walk safely, of course. And, uh, and we'll get through this. We will get through this. I think that's a great thought to end things on. So um, our guest has been Dr. Rachel Mandel. Um, if you'd like to learn more about Rachel and her work and how to contact her, um, I'll put information in the show notes at leanblog.org slash 369. And again, I'd also invite you to go back. You can find our earlier discussion um, at uh, leanblog.org slash 367 or episode 367 if you're listening to this in a, a podcast app. Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time, sharing your thoughts and reflections and tips. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.